Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Okay, Galatians 5. We're going to be focused on verses 7 through 12 this morning. But let's take it back to verse 1 of chapter 5 and read from there. So this is Galatians 5, verse 1. And this is the word of the Lord. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so back into Galatians, this book on how we are justified, how we are made right before God. And there must be justification in the life of the Christian, right? Because we are born in sin. No one is righteous. And so we have to have a way of coming before God justified. And the means of justification is not by the keeping of the law. It is not by the keeping of certain aspects of the law, like the ceremonial law and food laws and circumcision and things like that, the Old Testament shadows. It's not by um, retaining the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's not by um, works that are, we think or we define as really important. <clears throat> and, uh, but it is solely, <clears throat> excuse me, solely by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the ground of justification. So verse 7, he is again not wanting to be unclear. <laughs> uh, he is very much wanting to be clear about what he's teaching. He does not want them to go away and, and be confused about whether or not you can follow the Judaizing heresy. He wants them to know that it is heresy if you follow the teaching. It's a different gospel, and it's a gospel that will, will eventually sever you from Christ. So he's not being mealy-mouthed. He's being very clear about what's at stake in this, and this this passage and the previous one that we looked at, he's very intent on getting that message across. So verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were running well. 
everything was going well. I was there preaching, preaching in power by the Holy Spirit. You were hearing, you were responding, you were rejoicing in the fact that you were justified by faith alone, and you are no longer running like that. You have, uh, you have gone after something else. You were running well. And the Christian life is, is often described as a race, right? 1 Corinthians 9 the Apostle Paul calls it uh, a race. 9.24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. It's, it's a race. It's a race, but it's not just a, a simple race. It's a race that's filled with, like, intense obstacles. It's an obstacle course. Right? And hindrances rise up all the time. And those are the obstacles that we face in this life. And so um, the Galatians were running well, things were going well, and then in comes either this one man, as our passage seems to say, right? Whoever he is, the Apostle Paul says, or a group of, of Judaizers come in and you know, just probably started very subtly with, you know, have you considered that maybe we shouldn't turn our back on Moses and that it's, you know, we're, uh, there's continuity between what you're saying and what Moses said. And then they got a little deeper and it became clear that they really wanted you to um, follow this, the ceremonial laws. And, you know, even if they're, even if they, um, you know, they're just, they're just add-ons. They're, they're good things to do. They were ordained by God, after all, and so why don't we give ourselves to them? And then they were like, now you... Then they get to the point of circumcision, and they're like, no, you, you, you need to be circumcised. You need to, you know, in order to really make progress in the faith, you need to be circumcised. And on and on they go, convincing them that they have something to do other than believe in Christ. And it's a hindrance. Who hindered you? Right? You obeyed the gospel. Now you are quitting the race by going after the words of the Judaizers who preach another gospel. Who hindered you? What hindered you? What obstacles are tempting to you now in following Christ? I mean, it's an absurd thing that all of you do. Worship a resurrected God-man. It's totally absurd. Right? Right? It's completely unreasonable. And that may be, in me saying that, you may be thinking of a lot of people who say that to you in a way different than what I'm saying, the way I'm saying it, right? Um, we believe what is written in the Word of God by faith, right? We believe it by faith. And um, in that sense, it's, 
it's unreasonable. It's revealed. It's a revealed religion. The Holy Spirit helps us perceive spiritual realities. We must be born again. We must be given a new mind and new hearts and all of those things, right? And it's not just, it's not just a matter of me um, looking in the Scriptures and it says that one plus one equals two, and so um, it's truth. And so what hinders you? There are different, I think all of us are, are knocked off the course of salvation by faith alone in a number of different ways. Um, we're barraged with uh, all kinds of false teaching. False teaching that seems to have some vapor of Christianity in it, but then really is just a different gospel. You think of social, social justice. Christians very much care about justice, right? We long for the justice of God to be enacted on the earth. We, we pray for the persecuted church, right? We want justice. We want those who afflict Christians to be crushed, right? We want, them, we want their hostilities to cease, and we want justice. We want their um, persecution to cease. Um, and so, um, but social justice is not necessarily about what God, about God's justice. In fact, it's not at all about God's justice. It's about some manufactured justice that, that man has determined is the highest order of justice. Right? Um, wokeism, same sort of thing, you know, seducing you. Uh, are you being seduced by wokeism? <laughs> I don't, hopefully, we, we have some resistance to that and we have some resistance to social justice. Um, but wokeism is run amok right now. Um, sometimes what hinders you in your Christian walk is the liberalism of your closest friends. That may be one of the hardest things that you will ever face. You deeply love somebody, and you, you clearly know that they, they hold no spiritual truths similar to yours, right? Maybe it's somebody you went to college with, and they've gone down one road, you've gone down another, and it's just always on your heart that you want to share the gospel with them, and they're always willing to share their liberalism with you, sort of unashamed in doing so. And then, and then you begin to think, well, maybe, maybe my faith is foolish. You know, maybe I need to be a little more nuanced, and maybe I need to Maybe I need to be more compassionate in the sense that liberals are compassionate, which means not compassionate at all, but that's what they call it, right? But that's hard. The, the beliefs of your friends will tempt you to abandon the race and go your own way because you want to maintain what? You want to maintain relationship. It's very difficult family members, it's especially difficult in, in that front, right? Um, the materialism of our culture, right? The, 
the, I mean, materialism as a philosophical idea, right? That what you see is, you know, what you perceive is all that there is. There's nothing beyond what we can touch and handle and taste and see. And that, that can derail us, right? Because it, it, that's what it feels like. Most days it feels like all there is is what I see, touch, handle, taste, right? Um, the, you know, the, another thing that may um, run you off to another gospel is just the, the, the immediacy of works religion. You know, it would be really nice for my priest just to tell me to do 50 Hail Marys, and at the end of it, I have some relief. Problem is, next week he's going to tell you to do the 50 plus another 50, depending on the sin you've committed. Right? And to do those works of penance there, um, <clears throat> rather than repentance, it's just, just penance. Um, some, some of you are seduced, or you're hindered in your Christian walk by the license of the libertines. You want to live the life they live. You want to have the fun they have. You want to live the lifestyle they have. You want to throw off all of God's onerous, burdensome, um, terrible laws so that you can indulge your flesh. And we've known people who have been derailed because they just, all of us know people who have been derailed from faith by and from running the race by the license that they want to live. Um, this is the whole, this is, again, to come back to this fresh on my mind again, is this is the revoice movement, right? The gay Christian celibate movement. God says no to them, and they say, well, he says yes to our affections. He says no to our touching, right? And so they've, they, they want to get their flame on without touching one another. Okay, that's free voice, to put it in a certain way. And God says, no, 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 no. Soft men will not inherit the kingdom of, of heaven. You're like, okay, wow, that's pretty starkly stated in 1 Corinthians 6, you know. And, um, and so they're being seduced by the, the license, the the. The, the affections that, that are raging and the, the, the lusts that are raging around in their hearts. And it will not be long before the, the gay celibate Christian movement ends, and it will just be the gay Christian movement. Celibacy will quickly be gone as covenanted male-male and female-female relationships will be sanctioned. Um. Sometimes you're hindered from running your race by the seduction of intellectuals. And one of the sermons I was reading by Calvin on this passage, he just keeps, he keeps pounding on this. He's like, the Christian faith is simple. 
It's, it's even, I'll just say it, it's for the simple-minded. He's just like, it's simple. It's so simple. It's just a, it's, it's not, it's not impressive. It's like, I'm weak, I need a Savior, God sent one, I believe in him, I'm saved. It's all about weakness. It's all about sinfulness. It's all about how little we are apart from our Savior. But the intellectuals come along, and what do intellectuals do? Intellectuals begin lauding man, right, and the accomplishments of mankind. And if, if we set our mind to anything, we can, we'll figure it out, right? And so transhumanists are, are trying to figure out how to um, bolster the cells in your body and make them immortal and, and add nanotechnology so that you can live forever. And, and they're going to overcome death, these intellectuals, right? Every intellectual is doing his business and also pouring money into the transhumanism work because they're so scared to die, they've got to figure out a way to overcome death even if it's a horrible existence that they, ha that they figure out. Um, and so that, that is trouble. But the, the one conundrum they can't figure out is, is how to, is sin. You know, I mean, you, you could make somebody live 500 years and that just gives them another 420 years to sin against everybody there with, you know. Um, give, give a mass murderer 420 more years of life and he'll just kill another thousand people, right? There's no heart transformation. There's no dealing with sin. There's no conforming to the image of God who created us, right? There's none of that. But that seduces us because we're like, wow, that's like, that's true. That's true pursuit, that's intellectual pursuit, that's, that's respectable. But I just believe that God took on flesh, lived among us, died on my behalf, and I believe he rose from the dead. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Some of us are hindered from our Christian walk by the shame of ridicule and persecution. We can't handle even the faintest blowback. We can't handle relational tension. We can't handle the fact that somebody would, would uh, not embrace us for who we are. And so when they shame us or ridicule us, we're just... we're very easily ready to say, okay, you're right, you know. And we, we these are all obstacles that, that hinder us. Sometimes it's just uh, something that, that hinders us is just the tyranny of the urgent. There's so much to do. There's so much. I've got to work so hard just to make ends meet that I really don't have time to pursue the Lord and pray and go to worship and fellowship with my brothers and sisters Christ. It's just there's so, much, there's so much work to do. 
and before long, you worship work. Others are another obstacle that we face. Some are thrown off the path, are just theological liberals, like the Judaizers. They're theological liberals. Um, theological liberals come in and they, they suck out all the commands of Scripture, right? Anything that's obvious, like love your wife. And they just suck all of that out and they just make a, an intellectual sort of nothingness of all of the teaching of Scripture. It's just like something to think about. It's something to systematize. It's something to, it's something to do so that you can um, be a professor of religious studies at a university that despises the Christian faith. But some people are thrown off by that. They read theological liberals, come at Scripture, deconstruct it, talk about its historicity, all those things, and suddenly they're just like thrown off the path. Right? They can't handle the sophistication of, of the, the religious theological liberals. But what else? I mean, that, that's my long list of things that I thought about that have the potential of, of disrupting our walk. And it's intellectual things, it's fleshly things, it's moral and ethical things that are hindrances. But what comes to your mind on this front? What temptations do you face that um, that would keep you from running well? Have I covered them all? How does that answer my question? Yep. Mm-hmm. So the cares of the world would be the answer. Um, yeah. Cares of the world come along and get all of your attention and you don't think that God hears your prayers and so you just take matters into your own hand. You determine your own path, right? And, um, and, and that leads us astray. Yeah. <clears throat> One thing that began to hinder me from moving forward is that the, the Christianity of grace um, was not nailing all of my stuff to the cross, but being like Luther later. Yeah. Yeah, Scott's saying it's Christianity is great for my spiritual life, but it doesn't really help me get bring bacon home, and it, it doesn't help me with the practical aspects of of life. Um, 
and that can be a hindrance. How, how do you overcome that? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we, we could, um, and that's the importance of prayer, the importance of thanksgiving, and all those practical things that we accomplish. We should honestly be giving the glory to God. That's what it means to work as unto him, right? It means that you're doing it in, in the power he's given you and uh, for his glory and acknowledging that. He's, he's provided, you know, the Lord provides. <clears throat> yeah. Those are helpful. Any other thoughts before I move on? You mentioned self-righteousness and legalism. Self-righteousness and legalism as a hindrance to running the race. Yeah, I mean, I, I talked about the, the works religion. You know, but yeah, self-righteousness is works religion. Uh, thinking that, that we can do it on our own um, <clears throat> is not helpful. I mean, it, for... One of the frustrating things is when you are young, when you're a teenager, college student, early 20s, um, young married, something like that, you, um, how shall I put it? It's a difficult time because you haven't had much experience of the Lord's blessings. And it's easy just to go through life thinking I'm doing it on my own. I don't need the Lord. I can do it on my own. I can lie and get away with it, you know, and there are no consequences. I can cut corners here, and I've been doing that, and I get away with it, you know, and, and you're sitting there at 19 years old having figured out ways to cut corners. But there hasn't really been much time for you to be disciplined by the Lord. Other, other, others of us have, have uh, enough years under our belt that we see the consequences of our sin and lament them. See the consequences of our sin on our families and on our children, right? And so um, there's this blindness that goes with being new in the faith. There's zeal that goes with being new in the faith, but it's a zeal that sort of is ignorant, okay, to quote the apostle Paul. The zeal's good. The ignorance is not good. And with experience comes, um, comes wisdom. And so I, I think one of the obstacles of running the race when you're younger is that you haven't faced the consequences of your own sin. But if God's merciful to you, at some point you will. You want to be disciplined by the Lord. 
If you're not disciplined by the Lord, then he just wants you to run as fast as you can straight to hell. He will put no hindrance before you. His discipline is the hindrance that comes in regard to hell, right? We're talking about hindrances to heaven here in a sense. But God's discipline is what you want to keep you from running headlong into hell. And when you're in hell, you will be filled with the most awful regret. And it will never end. Verse 8, the apostle then says, this persuasion did not come from him who calls you. This persuasion, right? This Judaizing persuasion, he calls it a persuasion. This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. Uh, This persuasion, this works righteousness of the Judaizers is not from God. It's not from God, the God who calls you. It hasn't arisen from the God who cares for you, who calls you, who draws you to himself. It's just the concoction of this dude, this man, this heretic who's come into your assembly. It does not come from the God who, who loves you, who calls you. And of course, then we get the verse that... Um, is stated also in 1 Corinthians. We'll, we'll look at that. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. So when, these, when heresies and when sins come into a church and the elders don't care about the purity of the church and they're doing nothing to either exhort from the pulpit or practice church discipline one-on-one, then, then leaven starts to leaven in the congregation and then you begin to see people imitating one another in what is wrong not in what is right, right? And that leaven will spread through a church, right? One person gossips, and then you have a church filled with gossips, right? It just spreads like gangrene, right? And that should not be. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul is dealing with a church that had uh, the significant problem of not incest, they had that problem, but probably the worst problem was that they sort of boasted about it. Boasting in incense, not incense, that's stupid too. (laughs) Incest, boasting in incest, I mean there's like, you have to be really sophisticated to get to the point where you can make that a boast, you know, But, but I think you I think you know, living in a liberal society, just the crazy things people can boast in, you know? Um, I, I'm not even going to mention the things that go through my brain, but here's 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant. Right? They're boasting about it. Have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, assembled 
And I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Now, their boasting probably was not like, wow, you know, we, let's, let's have more incest in our church since we already have one case. It was, it was probably the kind of boasting, you know, that, that, just, um, that just tried to um, thought it was virtuous not to deal with the problem, you know? Thought it was virtuous. We're, we're loving those who are committing incest. That's probably their boast. It was probably like, you know, we're not dealing with it because we're, we're being compassionate toward them. You know, no, we're not going to address it head on. We're going to love them through this. We're not going to practice church discipline here. And, and Paul's like, look, kick him out of the church if you love him. Kick him out of the church so that maybe in the destruction of his flesh will come the salvation of his soul. And then he goes on and says the leaven. Everybody knows what leaven is. You know, think of like sourdough um, starters. That leaven is just, it's dough left over from a, a previous baking. It's added to fresh dough and then it just, that fermented dough works through the, the dough. It spreads all throughout it. Um, even if only a few people you know, went after the Judaizing heresy, it could spread like leaven in the dough. Right? Even if only one person was being tempted by this in the church. It's such a terrible error that Paul's like, okay, wake up, be careful. This could spread and spread and spread and just completely destroy this church. Uh, Spurgeon, error races around the world by the time truth gets its boots on. Error races around the world before, um, by the time truth gets its boots on. Luther said, Let not us therefore make little account of the leaven of doctrine, for although it be never so little, yet if it be neglected, it will be the cause that by little and little the truth and salvation shall be lost, and God himself be denied. For when the word is corrupted and God denied and blasphemed, which must needs proceed, which must needs follow if the word be corrupted, there remains no hope of salvation, right? Not only can the, the leaven spread from within a congregation, the leaven can spread from congregation to congregation, from denomination to denomination, from country to country, right? And then suddenly the church has lost the gospel and we're sort of plunged into uh, the dark ages without the gospel. You know, it does not take long for that to happen, honestly. Verse 10, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. And now he's... He's sort of honing his aim here, isn't he? He goes to those who are being tempted and he says, look, I believe in you. You can do this, right? You can 
resist this theology. You can resist this. I have confidence that you are going to come back to the view that was previously taught to you, which is the gospel. This is not a gospel that you're going after. And that the one who is disturbing you will bear his punishment. He is going to be judged. God is, or the apostle is confident of that. And, and perhaps through the means of them awakening, right? The apostle's confidence is that they will boot those teachers or this teacher and return to their former doctrine. Which makes me think of this passage in 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he is a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Godliness actually is a means of gain when accompanied by contentment. So, made me think of that. Verse 11, But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. If he preached circumcision, he wouldn't have been persecuted. right? If Paul had gone there and he preached what they were preaching, he wouldn't be persecuted. His ongoing persecution is... Um, is uh, proof that, that they have gone a different way. The message of the cross, the stumbling block of the cross, equals salvation through Christ's work alone. Okay? And then this final verse. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Um, Paul is angry. Paul is very angry at this point. I think it's a righteous anger. It is certainly, um, and, and why, why do I call it a righteous anger? Because Paul is not defending himself here. I think if they were insulting Paul for being fat and short and ugly, he would have taken it a thousand years. He would have never brought an objection against it. He probably would have affirmed what they said. I mean, he calls himself that, right? He, personal offense, he could take hits, but when the truth of God was at stake, that's when the Apostle Paul would not compromise and when he got angry. And it's a righteous, it's a righteous zeal. The NIV translates this verse. It's maybe the first time I'm quoting the NIV. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, I wish those who were disturbing you might also get themselves castrated. ESV, I wish those who, were, who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So you get the drift here. Paul is playing with language here. He's using a verb that means to cut off, right? And he's essentially using an analogy between circumcision and being cut off from the Lord, right? And so, 
And so Paul is essentially saying, you know, these guys who are all about cutting, cutting off of skin, why don't they just go ahead and cut the whole thing off? And that's essentially what he's saying here. Meaning, why don't they just cut themselves off entirely from the assembly and leave, start their own religion, stop afflicting God's people, you know, be gone, be, be out, have no influence here. Luther says, Paul alludes here to circumcision as if he would say, they compel you to cut off the foreskin of your flesh, but I would that they themselves might be utterly cut off by the root. Calvin says, Paul is using a metaphor here when he refers to being cut off. For those rogues who had corrupted and falsified the teachings of the gospel were fighting for circumcision. Therefore, he says to them, well, then go ahead and cut. Cut off as much as you wish. Your only design is that others would observe your such trifling matters. As far as I'm concerned, I wish that these seducers were cut off altogether and that God would destroy them and cast them off, that they would be rejected and condemned by him and have no hope of salvation. And so that is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's, he's you know, made the knife slip and you lose all of your manhood. And may that be a spiritual analogy for you being cut off from the church, for your false gospel. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's kind of harsh. (laughs) Well, Calvin anticipates you, and he says, now, if we claim that this goes against the golden rule of love, the answer is very simple. Yes, We are duty-bound to love our enemies, however much they persecute and harm us and seek to ruin us. We must, despite this, as far as we are able, pursue their highest good and their salvation, having pity and compassion on them when we see them thus given over to Satan. This is what love involved. Yet God ought to come before anyone else. As we have already said, love, therefore, is something which we express to fellow human beings, If someone has hurt me, I must forget about it. Even if he still bears malice toward me, I must continue to seek his well-being. However, when it comes to maintaining the cause of God, it is then that men must be regarded as less than nothing, as we have said. Right? When it comes to my reputation and how I'm made up and my foibles, tack me all day long and I will return it with love. But when it comes to the truth of God... I hope you cut off everything between your legs. And you're cut off from the church and you're damned to hell. And that is Christian zeal. That is true Christian zeal. It's very difficult to remove your ego from any situation. Elders and pastors know this. It's very difficult to feel pure in any sort of doctrinal dispute or dispute in the church because you're grappling with your own sin. But if these men hadn't been godly, if these men didn't have that attitude toward the papacy, for example, we would be worshiping much differently today. And our righteousness would not be by faith. We would be We would all be holding these little necklaces, working off our sins, one by one. 
thinking that we could be righteous that way. And we would have abandoned the gospel, right? And so praise God that these guys were bulldogs, you know, when it came to the truth of God. And then he goes on, he says this last point, yet we do the complete opposite, right? He said, you know, take hits when it's personal, but when it's God's truth, you better be offensive. And he says, we do the complete opposite. For what is our common reaction? To compromise and strike sail when God is attacked, and yet when we defend our own, but and yet we defend our own rights to the bitter end. Right? My rights, my rights. We defend our rights all the time. You have no right to tell me to do that. And you, police officer, have no right to write me a ticket and the state has no right to investigate whether I'm abusing my children, and you have no rights. You know, rights, rights, rights. We're always doing this. But when it comes to the truth of God, we don't really even care. We just don't even care. We won't even bring it up. But we go through this long litany against all the things that we have suffered, and somebody in the church says one little thing about us, and we take it personally, and then we set, you know, we get... Oh, man. He's right. It's true of me. It's true of us. How much of your getting angry has to do with your own ego and how much of it has to do with the truth of God? It's hilarious. I mean, laugh. It's way disproportionate on your ego, right? Or am I just the God, most godless person here? Completely godless. It's just we're always, always quick to protect ourselves and very late to protect God and his truth and defend his word. Because we know that that's going to lead to conflict, that's going to lead to loss of relationships, that's going to lead to tension, that's going to lead to us being ostracized by other people, right? But, but um, honestly, defending yourself all the time may have the same results. <laughs> you know, if you're so sensitive that you're always defending yourself and every issue has to be negotiated before you'll move on, well, it's just, you're just afflicting people. You're just, you're just constantly afflicting people. Your call is to forgive them and to not take offense. Preaching to myself. Right? It's our call to not take offense. But when the truth of God is being drugged through the muck at the Thanksgiving dinner table, make yourself as odious as you need to be. Seriously. You ought to be odious there, but we always hold our tongues. We always hold our tongues. All right. That's all I have. Let's, let's um, move on from there. Leave behind the images of cutting things off. <laughs> and worship the Lord. Father, thank you for... Your word, thank you for the 
the godliness of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for uh, that your word written for us that we can this many years later by your spirit know exactly what was happening in this these churches in this area so distant from us culturally so distant from us in space lord we thank you for that we pray that it would yield good fruit in this congregation and in our own hearts and lives we pray in jesus name amen